Welcome to episode 6 in our series, How to Build an Integrated Health and Care System. I'm Dr. David Hamilton, your host and guide on this journey. I have spent over 30 years working in the NHS in various guises as consultant, physician, director, chief executive, and I'm acutely aware of how difficult it is to promote true integration and collaboration among health and care partners. In each episode of this series, we will be examining a particular feature of integrated systems and how you go about practically applying some of the lessons from successful leaders around the world. Today, I'm in conversation about connecting people with Brian Dolan. Brian is director and co-founder of Health Service 360 here in the UK, director of service improvement with Canterbury District Health Board, as well as the originator of the worldwide social movements Last 1000 Days and End PGA Paralysis. He has many other accolades, jobs and descriptions and jokingly refers to himself as the director of pretentious job titles. I began by asking Brian to describe his role in the Canterbury system in the early days. So my role, I went, I went, I was keynoting at a conference, uh, an ED nursing conference, ICU conference in uh, 2005 and met with the then chief nurse, uh, the you know, executive director of nursing, Mary Gordon, and then chief medical officer, Nigel Miller. I said, look, you know, you've, because your background, because you've done a lot of work around service improvement in emergency departments, could you come and spend some time working with our ED team? They're really good people. It'd be great to have a, just, just, you know, a view of how do we unlock some of the thing. And I've not that long finished as an exec director in the NHS on the South Coast, but I was also clinical director as well. So that fairly deep and extensive both management and clinical um, experience of service improvement and all the changes. So I said, well, I'll come back for five weeks. Well, that was in 2005. So it's clearly, you know, at 2022, a very Irish five weeks. Um, and it, it's been in the big space of not just ED, not clearly now, but beyond the whole uh, service improvement comes system. And as I like to perceive myself, it's about being a flea on the elephant's back, you know, um, because sometimes it's getting past, as well as somebody's more than once described me, getting past the doors other people can't. Because in the end, all service improvement, all systems change, all integration is not about, it's not about the structures, that's just your anatomy. What it's really about is the people, the process, if you will, the physiology. And so from the space I work in is in the space which is about relationships and all of that stuff, the soft stuff, which let's be blunt, is in reality the hardest stuff of all. And that's what I love doing. The good people. Thanks, thanks, Brian. That's really helpful. And uh, it's not the first time we've heard people describing the concentration and focus on on behaviour has actually been the really hard stuff, not the soft stuff. So tell us a little bit about the yeah. programmes that you led, because um, you didn't you didn't stick to that silo of uh, emergency department working. You broadened out across the the whole portfolio, didn't you? So tell tell us about the programmes that you led. Well, there's a, there's a program I personally run, uh, have run, and there's another one that um, I'm, I'm complimented, if you will. So I started running a two-day lean thinking and leadership program at the request of the Chief Nursing Officer of New South Wales. And at that time, there was, this is about 2008, 2009, I think, and there's something in the region of 1,600 uh, ward managers 
uh, from junior to quite senior ward managers, departmental managers, mess managers, and so on. And I brought that back to Christchurch and said, look, how do you feel about trying it? So we tried it with certainly with nurses, but I, but I had a much clearer ambition. It was test the proof of concept with nurses. And then we had allied health participating. And then fairly quickly, I was pleased that we could open it up to all, everyone in the health system. And there's very few, when you think about it, there's very, very few courses. And the course is called Collaborate. And that was quite intentional. And there's very, very few courses where they're open to absolutely everyone. There's lots of courses for clinicians. There's numbers for, you know, for admin staff, for technical staff. This one, you know, I have a vivid memory of one around a table. There was a registrar, a, a, a cook in one of the community hospitals, an IT person, a nurse, and there was a physio around that table. And that was kind of reflective of the diversity of people. And one thing that was really lovely was it's about shifting the culture. So although ostensibly... It was about lean thinking, leadership, and it covered patient safety, it covered personalities, a session I called How to Work with People You Want to Kill, which is about how do you engage people who think see the world differently from how you see the world, and I still want that one. Um, so there's that, but it's really about people starting to realise that you, everyone actually is passionate about health. And it was lovely hearing one of the doctors saying, I've never really thought of the orderlies, as they call porters here, I never thought the orderlies would feel as passionate about safety as, as we who are clinical staff do. And the other thing is they all have to do a project. Everyone has to do a project and it has to be read. And so it's clinical microsystems change. There was no, there was no um, presupposition of what it would be. There was absolutely anything they wanted to do. There was no budget. And because counterintuitively, sometimes budgets uh, can stifle innovation. But when you have uh, no budget, actually, you have to be creative when you're thinking. And over the years, there's been well north of probably knocking on about 1,200 people come through that program across the system. And the other thing is the savings. So we, the, the project they would do that we got them to work out what the costs roughly based on a kind of a, a model of X amount per hour. Um, and it would run into millions and millions of dollars. And there's two pits. One was the, the amount of cash released. But the other, which is in many ways a lot more important in healthcare, was about the amount of time released. Because the biggest global threat we face in healthcare is not a financial one. It's actually a people one. So if you can release time for people to do the stuff that has the greatest value, that's when you're really making a difference. So that was that's just the program I run. That's collaborate. Fine, that's really impressive to hear you talking about collaborate in the way you do. And I've heard you obviously talk about this before. Um, it is quite unusual to have persuaded people that a program which was basically designed on uh, the principles of getting people together from lots of different disciplines and. Uh, concentrating on how they behave and changing the culture. It, it must have been hard to kind of persuade people that this was a good uh, investment for them because these pro these programs, I mean, that, that's a big commitment, isn't it? I mean, it may not have started out like that, but wow, a lot of, a lot of no, stuff to do it. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. And, and if, you will, if you like the flagship program, 
is called Accelerate, and that started around 2007 under the auspices of the previous uh, couple of CEOs ago now uh, called Gordon Davis. And that was aimed, um, so Accelerate is about the business of caring. So there'd be a cohort of 16 and there'd be docs. And, and this, by the way, was aimed at middle managers up. So you'd be looking at clinical directors, allied nursing, but also finance folks, service managers. So one of the things that's very striking about health, and it, it's certainly dramatically improved over the years, is a lot of folk don't appreciate, actually, it's a massive business. It's in most places, it's the biggest industry in any county, if not the second, it'll always be, you know. Um, and also because of how we are partly socialized, particularly from a clinical point of view, how folk are socialized, there isn't always a recognition of that it, the amount of resource and the wider picture of it. If you think about it, you know, people, particularly in the clinical roles, and especially as you would know in, in medicine, people are funneled down to a very fine vista, a very narrow vista of what the world is like. In lean, they talk about point optimizers. So the happiest surgeon is one with a scalpel in the hand of the patient underneath them. Um, and there's, you know, there's a bit of there's the outpatient bit, there's a war bit, and all the other stuff. And that's other people to deal with that, you know. And then, although I generalize a lot of surgeons, say, yeah, that's yeah, that sounds like me. But it was about giving them the big, big picture, and so they would learn about, um, they would learn about service improvement, they would learn about lean, they would learn about patient safety, they would they would go to other industries, and that was very, very important. Because historically, health has been quite introspective and inward looking, and let's be honest, a little bit special. Whereas going to industry, like to factories, to, to um, hotels, what's the, you know, hotels are very much about the experience. So what is it that drives them in getting a great customer experience? And while it wouldn't be layered on with a spoon, then when folk came back, they would talk about this. And because they were joining the dots, it's never about asking having providing answers it's actually about framing good questions is what a lot of leadership is about so they would think well if they do this here you know there is transferability or going funnily enough to a um, a milk factory where they produce dry milk and, and butter and you can start to think oh that's how they keep it so clean and safe because food safety is so important as you know so it gave people really rich insights. And of course, the other bent, bet about it was that the CEO, they would get an opportunity to spend that time with the CEO who'd listen, they'd write it, you know, dear CEO letters and he would respond. The power of that, and I think sometimes this is forgotten, with great intent, CEOs are remote because they are managing you know, thousands and thousands of people and no matter how committed, how they have got a world of orbit. So folk, it broke down a lot of the barriers between, if you want to call it, management and clinical staff. Because they would quickly see, you know, a lot of managers feel as passionately about great care and great resource management as we do. And it, it, so it really was shifting the thinking. Again, they also had two projects. The power of it was, in fact, a Dragon's Den style presentation around it. So these, these particularly Accelerate, is complex uh, program, but the power of it, when you then you know, supplement it with the collaborate that I've had, what you're doing is shifting what effectively is the thinking of thousands of people across an organization. Then not only do they understand how integration works, how the systems work, 
but also get to know each other and it also then dissolves a lot of the silos and the artificial demarcation disputes that occur needlessly. And I was just going to um, come on to that, Brian, because I think some of the issues that we're facing in this very complex system that we're now inhabiting mm. is that we've we've almost lost connection with other people within the system even if they're in our own organization we've become very siloed yeah. and i think both accelerate and collaborate deliberately set out to reconnect people across different disciplines and i think somehow we we really have lost that and people find it uh, both unusual but also energizing to be able to reconnect with people who are in the same business as them but actually they never see each other no, that's exactly right. And, and it was a lovely moment when there was an IT person who came up to me at the end of a, one of my sessions and he said, you know, I've been here for two years and never really quite understood the patient's safety. And actually, I've just realized I'm as important to patient safety as the nurses, doctors and allied are, you know, because my bit is providing IT resources that mean that they can access this stuff. So it all makes sense now. And, and one of the things with the curricula is that they don't, they haven't necessarily changed to say, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll make them a little bit less clinically focused and we won't use, it's about being respectful to say, if we're going to talk about patient safety, we're going to actually talk about human factors. We're going to talk about humans being humans make mistakes, not because of bad people, but because the systems aren't working. So how do we make our systems work better from, a, uh, from a, a human point of view, because all systems change in the end is human change. And the, the danger and the risk is we get into this thing about integrated care or ICSs and think, oh, well, it's just a, it's an entity that will make it work. It's not, it's a, it's a, it's a house in which there's many inhabitants and our collective job is not to keep them locked in their different rooms. It's to open all the doors so they can cross and 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 cross fertilize their ideas, and they share their thinking. And then realize we all want the same thing. We all want to make it better for patients. And when it works for patients, it always works for staff. Yeah, and you you just made me reflect on the emerging ICSs in this country, and I wonder how much of their time they're going to get to devote to thinking about the types of things that you did in your programs which is genuinely bringing people together i think often we get really obsessed with setting up new structures and putting new systems in place when actually um the fundamental human connections are the thing that's going to decide whether uh, ics's uh, this time around or previous structures have actually worked it's, it's really all about the people i suspect it is, and I think, you know, there's nothing politicians love more in terms of giving a sense of improvement and change and movement by doing restructuring. And, and they're not particularly helpful because they only affect a relatively narrow band of staff. And the danger of restructuring is that the clinical staff to be, start to become disengaged. I think, well, look, you know, something's with us and we're this is our third or fourth. We'll just keep our heads out doing our stuff. And the the most successful organizations, they don't succeed because of the transactional hitting the targets, so even if they miss the point. The successful organizations are founded on the discretionary effort of those folk who wait after work because they're really keen to kind of catch up with some folk that can talk about, look, how do we make this better? They're emailing a message and, and, and you know, don't, I wouldn't want to be, mis be misconstrued as they are willing to sacrifice their 
personal time, the personal, it's, you know, at, at the cost of all the other stuff. It's really about, it's driven by a passion for making it better. It's going that extra mile because they really, really want to make it better as opposed to an expectation that you have to do this stuff. And the discretionary effort is about the psychological safety of being part of an organization that wants you to succeed, that wants it to get better and will support you and trust you. Um, you know, the blogger Roy Lilly often talks about start with the patient and work backwards. And let's be honest, you could do worse than that as opposed to start with the organization and work forward, which is what too many restructures do. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I just want to move on briefly to, to talk about uh, some of those personal values and, and caring, because you've spent a lot of your time in your career promoting uh, the, the concept of caring. We talk about health and care, and I'm, I'm not sure how much time we really think about what it means to be caring for individuals. I wonder if you just give, a, give us your thoughts on uh, maybe some of the work you've done in that area, because it's, it's an area that we can sometimes forget about. But if you're a patient, it's usually the number one thing that you're concerned about. Yeah, and, and it, 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 <laughs> that's a vast question, but it's also at the heart of what it is we do. Because it's not enough for a patient to be cared for. It's about to feel cared about. And, you know, no patient will say, oh, my God, they are so good at putting in Venflons. What they would talk about is when they were frightened, somebody held their hand. That matters more. And, and there's an Australian academic, Jocelyn Lawler, who wrote a book based on a doctorate called um, Behind the Screens. And it's about, in this instance, about the invisibility of nursing. So, you know, once you go behind the screens, nurses will do very, sometimes very, very intimate things, which are kept behind the screens because people don't want to talk about that stuff, quite understandably. But then they'll talk about the, what the doctors have done, which is often more visible. So it, it's, it's a fascinating as we start to unpick. And then, you know, think about... Um, Caring, if I remember correctly, comes out of um, Latin caritas to, you know, and charity. That's where we get all that sort of stuff. So there is, I think it's about love of other. And one of my favorite books, which I read years and years ago, called Moderated Love. And it's by Alistair Campbell, but not that Alistair Campbell, the one, the theologian Alistair Campbell. But he talked about something really fascinating that always stayed me with the last 30 years of reading it. And he used doctors, nurses, and social workers. And he talked about when you can unpick it theologically, what is it we, the doctors, nurses, and nurses do? They get they, their sense of purpose, they gain the, their, their, their status, their respect from the suffering of other people. And when you start to unpick that, that's a, you have to lean into the discomfort. The caring for others is something that you get a great sense of purpose and joy and satisfaction and all those things. But that's because others have suffered for you to do that. And that's quite challenging for us as health professionals. Um, I, 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 I've been in nursing for, you know, it's my 40th year in nursing. And as I like to say these days, I'm, you know, I've been so long in nursing in dog years, I'm already dead. 
And I absolutely love being a nurse. I'm really proud of being a nurse. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's something very, and, and I love to think of the physios and the doctors and speeches, and but also the porters who are so proud of it. The, the tech person who's taking the course to do that. You know, the, the NHS is, its institutional marble may be very battered, but it is something that is, it is so built into what Britain represents, what Britain can be most proud of. And what its foundation stone is made of is kind, kindness. It is the embodiment of the best of kindness. And I think that's true of all health systems. They're in the embodiment of caring for other people. And I think what my, what I do, if you like, is talk about that stuff because I think it's really important that we have these conversations that go way back upstream that ask us, why do we do this? Why does this matter? Because when you connect to the purpose, actually anything is possible. Brian, it's great to hear you talk about reconnecting with people around what is really important and why we do what we do in health and care. I just want to ask you how you think our leaders currently can connect with people around this. Well, I think the, the great leaders lead with narrative, with story that connects people to things. You know, you often think about um, Martin Luther King when he, you know, stood up in the, on the 28th of August, 1963, and he talked about his dream. He talked about when he looked forward to his, his four daughters being able to play with four white children and be judged not on the color of the skin, but of the content of their character, about the slums of slaves and the sons of slave owners sitting down around the table and breaking bread together. They were so vivid. They connect on a really human level. They kept talking about his dream because, you know, 40% of the people that were there that day in Washington, they weren't African-American. They were white. They were Native Americans. They were from the Indian subcontinent to Southeast Asia. They were from Europe because they believed what he believed. That's what they, That's where he made a connection. Now, suppose that Martin Luther King turned up and says, Oh my goodness, it's so good to be here. Now, wait till I tell you about the Gantt charts and the project plans we've been working on. You're going to be so excited. Nobody got too excited about an Excel spreadsheet, you know. Um, not a universal truth. I'm sure there's lots of big counters you can't wait to get up in front of them. But the thing is this it's stories. We make sense of the world through stories. And, and the American poet, uh, Rockmeyer, she said, the universe is not made of atoms, it's made of stories. And a story I started and have told for a long time now is teaching lean to a group of geriatricians, allied nurses, uh, managers about lean thinking. And it's talking about the biggest waste in healthcare is time. And in my head, fully formed as a construct, turned up as the last thousand days. And to of all groups to talk about this too, it just resonated. I said, you know, if you're a... If you're a man, you know, a white man in New Zealand, you can live to the age of 79. If you're a white woman, you'll live to the age of 83. But if you were a 76-year-old man or an 80-year-old woman, what have you got left? Well, what you have is a thousand days. And I know that, you know, once you get past the age of 10, life expectancy goes up. The longer you live, the longer you can expect to live. You know, we know all that in terms of demography, but it's a metaphor for valuing people's time because the question really is, 
if you had a thousand days left to live, how many would you choose to spend in hospital? And I've been talking about, I'm actually, a, while I'm known, you know, for the end PJ paralysis stuff I've led over the years, what I'm proud of is about the last thousand days, because that's a story that connects us to what would it be like if we really value time is people would have more time in the place with the ones they love the most. It's why I'm a fan of virtual wards. It's why we, and home first, and all of those things that keep people in the place with the people they love the most. But it's creating stories. That's what leaders are about, is creating a story where people think, I want to be connected to that story because that story speaks to my heart. And when we talk about hearts and minds, it is in that order for a reason. Because first it has to make emotional sense before it makes cognitive sense. And as Nietzsche said, people will put up with any what if they've got a really good why. And the job of leaders is to explore the why and connect them to the story that makes the most sense to make them lift them to places they didn't think they could go. On that note, I suppose if, if you were a, a, talking to a chief exec of a uh, newly formed ICS in this country. They've got like a million and one things on their agenda, haven't they? So they're, they're worried about patient backlogs and all that sort of stuff. Um, if you could give them some kind of um, some advice and some e- encouragement, I wonder what you'd be telling those kind of people in, in those roles right now in the NHS. Mm, that's a great question. I think, first of all, I'd say get out of the office because nobody's ever led something orbiting a desk. Get out there, go and visit people. Don't just go during the daytime, go in the weekends and the evenings. Go and listen, don't talk, and make your office a coffee shop. And I, uh, when, I was, when I was an exec director, I remember there was a with an interim CEO, and he, first day he comes and he goes to the canteen, he brings his tray and he sits down with a group of the porters. So do you mind if I sit here? They say, yeah, sure. You're... They had no idea who he was and he just starts chatting. And of course he gets more intel there than anyone. You know, there's an outstanding uh, nurse, Robert Sowney in Northern Ireland. And uh, he was the interim director of Northern Ireland Ambulance Service during the, the worst of the COVID recently. And he'd been a consultant nurse in the for many years and all sorts of wonderful things. But when he was a deputy director of nursing, he would jump in the post van between the hospital sites and he would jump in the van and go, you know, to the different, rather than waiting to get a taxi up to different sites. He got, so he knew more about that organization than anyone because they would tell him <laughs> the people delivering the post know everywhere, the green bead everywhere. So if I was talking, now uh, there'd be some of uh, a number of people, actually, if you were a CEO, you went, do they think, uh, does this person think I have time for this? Well, Actually, not only is it important, it is a essential feature of leadership. Management 101 was always management by walking about. It's the 101 of management. And if you spend all your time in meetings, actually, you know, we only die, we only die twice, you know. The first time when our body fails us and the second time when our name is spoken about for the last time. But at our funerals, nobody will ever talk about the job titles we had. They will talk about the person we were, the kind of person we were. And the great leaders are people who respect others. They don't 
use their their title and their authority. They use their influence. They find out about people. You know, and we know case study after case, and the literature is is a long way from anorexic when it comes to knowing this kind of stuff. So it's just practicing this kind of stuff and and ring fence it. You know, if you have people banging on your door with you and looking for your your time, just say, "Well, I've made an appointment with Mrs. Brown." You know, just. And she's, I have to see her constantly. Oh my God, you know, and as for the husband, you know, you create, you carve out that time. And you know, the best bit of it all, the best bit of it all is I've yet to meet a senior leader who hasn't loved those moments by getting out and finding, because it connects them back to all the nonsense I have to deal with. This reminds me of why it matters. So it's actually good for them too. Brilliant, Brian. That's absolutely a fabulous piece of advice. And uh, you're absolutely right. I've, I've never heard anyone who, when they take that advice, then regret it. No one ever goes, ah, oh, I wish I hadn't gone out and talked to those members of staff. I wish I, hadn't, I wish I hadn't spent all of that time getting to understand like the business that we're in. So it's really, it's really sound advice. Brian Dolan, thank you very much for sparing us the time to share your thoughts with us today. It's been enlightening and inspirational and indeed a joy. Thank you so much. It's difficult to sum up the lessons and learning from that conversation, but I think what Brian has emphasised with me are these things. It's people that create culture, not structures. Connecting people from across disciplines builds real teams and actually saves time and money. Leaders can either help and facilitate this process or can hinder it. Don't close all the rooms off. Instead, Open all the doors in the house. We should never forget the importance of caring. People remember kindness and compassion, not skillful practitioners. And finally, if you want your staff to connect with their patients, then leaders must find time to connect with their staff, even the people they might want to kill. I hope you enjoyed that discussion about connecting people in our systems. And if you want to chat more about integrated health systems generally, you can find me on Twitter at DavidHambleton1 or visit dhleadershipalliance.co.uk. In our next episode, we will be examining another facet of system leadership. So join us next time as we continue our exploration of how to build an integrated health and care system. Goodbye.